following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. I want to thank you on behalf of myself and Matt for allowing us to go this week uh, to a worship conference. It was great to join with hundreds of other uh, pastors and worship leaders. Uh, We were uh, over in Southern California, and I realize there's a stark difference between Southern California and Southern South Carolina, and it's called humidity, because we got off the plane in Savannah last night around 11.15, and we were welcomed back uh, to the South, and it was good to be back here. But we learned a lot. We had a great time building our own relationship so that we can be a stronger team uh, in leading you and being your servants here. So thank you uh, for that privilege of allowing us to go. And what we talked about there in a worship conference was not surprisingly about worship. And it fit perfectly into what we're talking about this week in Psalm 122, worship. What does it mean to enter into worship of God, into the worship of the Almighty? We're looking at the songs of ascent, And we've called it the Songs for the Sojourn. And we said last week that these uh, psalms, 120 through 134, 135, in that range, were psalms that were written for the traveling Hebrew, the Jew, who was heading to Jerusalem on three different occasions. That they were going for uh, the Feast of Passover, and for the Feast of Weeks, and for the Feast of Booths. And each year they would make these journeys and these pilgrimages uh, to Jerusalem to worship God there. And we said that they were travelers along the way, and we wanted to recognize and know that that we are pilgrims in the same way. We are moving towards a destination, and that we're sojourners, meaning that this life isn't our life. This home isn't our home. We're here for a time, but we are moving towards something greater than this place. And so as we live here, we need to understand not just the rules and regulations of this place, If you live in the U.S., if you come from another country and you live in the U.S., it's imperative that you learn the rules and the laws of the state so that you can abide by them. But we have a different rule and a different law that even at some level supersedes the laws of this land. And so what it does is it informs us of how as Christians, how as citizens of heaven, how as citizens of that city, that celestial city, that place uh, where God is, How is it that we are to live while sojourning here? And last week we said that we're on a journey. And as we look around, there are distractions and there are difficulties. And we look not to the gods of the hills, not to all of those things, but we look to God Almighty, to the Lord of hosts, who created heaven and earth, who will not let your foot stumble, who will not let you trip and fall, the God who protects you in the shade of the day and by night, the God who will take care of your going in and your going out. We look to Him and we trust Him along the way. This week, the journey has gotten to Jerusalem, if you would. Now you've got to change your mind from one who is on the cragged rocks, who is traveling down the pathway, walking that way, looking around at danger, looking around at temptation, going on towards this celestial city, going on towards Jerusalem. This week, you've arrived. This week, the psalm begins with, Oh, I rejoice because my feet are inside of Jerusalem. You're there and you're now bursting forth with celebration. You're there and you're now worshiping there in Jerusalem. You're at the temple and you're doing what you were called to do. And so that's where we're going to go this week of really asking the question, what does it mean to worship God and the joy of worshiping God? Now, it's important to pick up that word, the joy of worshiping God. 
Because I promise you, sometimes standing up here and looking out at a congregation, not just ours, I've been in lots of different congregations, joy may not be the word to describe what we do. Boy, I'm excited about God today. Oh, Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I'm finding all the pleasures of my, yeah, okay. And you're checking to see if McElroy is still winning, and he will win most likely. It doesn't matter. Who cares? It's the British Open. The U.S. Open's already been played. So, no, but it, we're, we're distracted, and we're not joyful. And the reason we're not joyful, and the reason that we're not, is we've lost what it means to worship. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, uh, open up to Psalm 122, and we're going to look at this great passage. And this was written by David, the king. And he said, I was glad, or I rejoiced, when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Parents, that's what you heard this morning from your kids, right? All right, guys, everybody up. We're going to church. Maybe some of your spouses had that same response from your spouse. Sweetie, we got to go to church. And and your beloved looked up and said, I rejoiced and was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. This is God's very word. May he add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. Amen. So first, I think it's important to establish this. Before we jump into the text itself, what is worship? What is worship? The Old Testament word for worship uh, was used somewhere around 177 different times in the Old Testament, and it meant to bow down to something. It meant to bow down. It was translated within the New Testament, and it had the similar uh, idea in the New Testament where where it said to recognize someone or something as greater than yourself. In Revelation, when John came into the presence of the angel of the Lord, And he began to worship. He bowed down before him. And the angel said, don't worship me. Worship God. Bow down. Acknowledge God to be of someone and something greater than yourself. And we've drawn the English word, the old English word. And this may be old hat for many of you, but I don't want us to to lose the simple things. That worship is simply that worth-ship. It is acknowledging the worth of something in our lives. And we as Christians have so changed the definition of it that we've made it only about this hour and a half that we're together, an hour and 15 minutes, that that's the worship time. And then we we speak about private worship over here. But the reality is that we worship all the time. I was reading through various sermons and looking through commentaries and picking up some illustrations. And here are several ways that we worship every day of the week. Imagine that your grandmother 
in her estate left you a beautiful piece of jewelry. And you've had it in your top drawer for all of these years, wrapped uh, in the felt, and it's there, and you never wore it. And then one day, some friends are over, and one of your friends is a, is a jeweler, is an expert uh, in jewelry, and you show your friend the jewelry. And he looks at it and he says, you don't realize what you have. You have here a piece of jewelry that was designed in the late 17th century, in the late 17th century, uh, by this incredible artisan uh, out of France. And you can't find these anymore. Most of them were destroyed or lost over the years. Do you realize the value of this piece of jewelry that you have right there in your drawer? He said, now, to really get all of the value out of it, you need to clean it up. You need to send it to this wonderful jeweler in New York who works on this kind of thing. And it's going to cost you a couple of thousand dollars in order to do it. But you see, once you get that done, this piece of jewelry would be worth three quarters of a million dollars. Now, would you send it to New York? If you had two grand, of course you would. And even if you didn't, you would probably figure out how to get two grand in order to send it. You worth-shipped at that moment. You made a worth-value judgment about going and doing that. Here in this area, over the last 10 to 20 years, there have been worth-ship uh, happening on real estate, Right? You buy this piece of property and buy this house, and you're told that if you put a little bit of money into it, in the next 10 to 15 years, it'll be worth this much money. And so you invest. You make a value decision, a worth decision. Now, it happens on the other ways uh, as well. You could say to someone, I have a pack of gum, and I'll give it to you for 10 bucks. Now, what would you say to me? Say, you're nuts, McCutcheon. Ten bucks for a pack of gum? No way. Ten bucks is too much to pay for a pack of gum. But if I came up to you and said, hey, I've got this new Mercedes, and I'd like you to have it for ten bucks, what would you say? Absolutely. Now, isn't ten bucks ten bucks? It's still ten dollars. But it's different because you had a value decision. You had a worth-ship made at that point. We do that all the time, every day, constantly we are worshiping we are worth shipping and we are making those value decisions well it's the same thing for the christian in our lives of saying now what is god worth to us we read in his word that he says these things we read who he is and then he calls us into a life of living this way we just finished with james And he's saying, here's a life that I've called you to live. Here's a way of living. Here's a way of responding to who I am. And constantly, at every turn, we are making worth-ship. We are worshiping at those moments of whether or not we're going to say, you are of this much value, and you're of this much investment. I am willing to put this in because of who you are. I'm willing to invest $2,000 because I know at the end of the day, you're worth so much more than that. I'm willing to invest my sobriety. I'm willing to invest my getting over my addiction and working on it. I'm willing to invest in loving one woman for the rest of my life as a husband well, one man for the rest of my life as a wife well. I'm willing to give up all the pleasures that all of my friends who are in college and high school say I should have to have and have to experience in this world. I'm worth shipping those things. A couple of great biblical examples of that. Think of Isaiah. Think of what God called Isaiah to do. If you know the story of Isaiah, Isaiah was called by God, and here's what Isaiah said, or here's what God said to Isaiah. Isaiah, I've got a wonderful church for you to go to. 
It's an awesome church. There's going to be lots of people there, and you're going to be the solo pastor at this church. Here's the problem. They're stiff-necked people. They're not going to listen to you. They're going to revolt against you. They're not going to like you. They're not going to agree with anything you say, but I'm calling you to do that. How would you respond to that? I know in my line of work, that wasn't really how Hilton Head Prez sold themselves to me. Bill, we'd like you to leave your wonderful church at Westminster up in Rock Hill and come down to Hilton Head where there's a bunch of people who aren't going to like you. Uh, They're not going to pay you. Uh, They're going to complain all the time. They're going to do all this. I would probably look at that moment and go, I'm good. I'm fine in Rock Hill. I'm going to stay put where I am. But you see, Isaiah said, God, I'm willing to go do that. Why? Because he had seen Christ. He made a worship decision. He looked up and he saw Christ seated at the throne, standing there. He saw him and he realized in comparison to who he is, what is it for me to go and minister to a church that will never like me? What is it for me to sacrifice this in this life for that immeasurable greatness? New Testament, Stephen in the same way. Stephen was an incredible evangelist. He was a deacon within the church. And he was cast into a pit and the Jewish uh, leaders of the day stood around him with stones to bludgeon him to death. When you hear someone being stoned, it is not a simple little thing. It is violent and it is horrific. And Stephen sat there and he looked up and he was willing to die and to be martyred in that brutal way. Why? Because he said he looked up and he saw Christ. He worshipped at that moment. He said, what is this life? What is me dying this brutal life? What is it for me to feel pain for a moment in time because I gain him? He worshipped. And so it's the same way for us as Christians. That's what worship is. It is bringing and getting a sense of proportion in life. It is beginning to see God for who he is. And through seeing him for who he is, then we begin to understand everything else. If you want to read something that will forever change your life, go pick up a copy of Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. How many of you have read Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion? Good for you guys. You've been blessed, haven't you? You would think, Bill, really? Well, if you were to go in the very beginning of Calvin's Institutes, this 20-something-year-old French uh, believer, young man, who had come to see the glories and the excellencies of God said this. It is basically, it is very easy for man, when he looks only on the linear, to perceive himself as great. To consider himself to have deep perception of thought and of insight and of visibility. But it's only then when he looks up to the sun and is blinded by the radiance of the sun and then looks back down and only sees shadows and forms that he realizes that his brilliance is limited. It's the same way with the Christian. It is only when you look up and you stare at the brilliance of God and you see him for all of his majesty, all of his excellency, and then you bring your gaze back down on this world that you begin to have it in proper portion. That's what worship is all about. It's seeing God and seeing life in their proper proportions. Does that make sense? It's not rocket science. Worship isn't something that we do, per se. It is who and what we are constantly about 
We are constantly in this process of worship and of worship in those ways. We are, as the psalmist says, we are magnifying the beauty and excellencies of God. Psalm 34, 1-3 says this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name forever. Matt and I were just at this conference, and the guy mentioned this idea of magnification, and, and he quoted from John Piper in his uh, book, um, Don't Waste Your Life. And Piper says there's two understandings of magnification, that when we as Christians are to magnify God in our lives, it's not with a microscope. A microscope takes something very small and magnifies it up to be something great. You can look at a dust mite within a microscope and it's a scary, terrible looking creature. Or is magnification what the Hubble telescope does to the galaxies that are out there? It takes things of infinite size and it brings them into a perception that we can have. That's what he's saying is the magnification of the Christian. That we are like a telescope supposed to look up and ponder the greatness of God. And all of a sudden it comes into its beauty and its majesty. That it comes in. It's one thing to sit on the shore, uh, on the beach in the evening. The lights are down and you can see all of the stars. They're magnificent, aren't they? You can see sometimes the stars as they fall. Or the satellites as they move. But could you imagine... If you stepped in and you looked at what the Hubble telescope was saying of those same stars, would you be more awed? Would you be more fascinated by them? They're not this little bitty specks up there, are they? They're galaxies and solar systems, and they bring them into perspective. That's what our worship is. It's magnifying the Lord and bringing it into proper perspective. So what then would be some of the characteristics of Christian worship, of this kind of worship? As we're looking around and we're saying, okay, I'm looking at God and I'm seeing him for who he is. I'm going, and by the way, you can go out into the world and you can look around and creation speaks of the glories and the splendors of God, doesn't it? That's called called general revelation. Everyone can understand that. But is that enough to really move your soul? More than to move the soul of any pagan in the world. But it's to take that... And then to take this, God's word, his special revelation, where he says, now look at that and be awestruck, but look at this and be dumbfounded. Look at who I really am, to come and just look, and then as you see who this God is, he begins to bring it into perspective, and the first characteristic that we see from Psalm 122 is this, worship is to be filled with joy. It's to be filled with rejoicing. I was glad. I rejoiced when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Now remember again what was happening. Three times a year, you were having to interrupt your schedule. Three times a year, you were going to have to make a trek. And you were going to have to go to Jerusalem. You are going to have to set other things aside and give them to stewards to take care of your family or to take care of your business or whatever it is that was going on. And you were going to have to interrupt your life three times a year to go to Jerusalem. And the psalmist here says, I rejoiced 
because I realize that how important my business is, it is important and I need to keep it going, and how important my livestock are and how important all the different things of daily life is and and how important it was to be uh, on the traveling team in the Hebrew uh, Baseball League uh, and to be there and to be a part of all of the different things that were happening, how important those things were. But my heart rejoiced when I had the opportunity to go to Jerusalem, to the place of the temple, to the Holy of Holies, to the place where all God's people gathered. I rejoiced. It was as almost as if David knew what the writers of the Westminster Confession Shorter Catechism would have written many, many years later, hundreds of years later, when they said, what is the chief end of man? And the chief end of man is what? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Let me teach you something today. It's the shorter catechism. And the first question is, what is man's chief end? What is his ultimate goal? What's his chief purpose in life? And the response is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So let's try that together. What is the chief end of man? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Enjoy him forever. John Piper twists it just a bit and he says, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. That your ultimate goal, why you were designed, if you've ever pondered that question for a moment, why am I here? Why am I here? Maybe you've been in Philosophy 101 and the professor said, why do we exist? And just sat. I would hope that every Christian in the room would go, we're here to enjoy the God who created me in his image and redeemed me through his son, Jesus Christ. I promise you that your philosophy professor would then not know what to do with you. You would most likely fail the course, you'd have to explain to your parents, but at least you gave good testimony for Christ in the middle of that. But he's saying, the purpose of mankind is to enjoy God, to rejoice in the presence of Him, to come in with singing, to come in with laughter. There's another one uh, that we're going to look at, one of the Psalms of Ascent, that it said, I laughed in the presence of God. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who wrote and said that he was out riding one day. And he said, I had to stop in a field and beg God to remove his presence from me, for if he stayed with me, the joy of his presence would have killed me. I don't even know how to relate to that. That the joy of his presence in your life just so overwhelmed you that you had to beg God. It's like the kid who has the father on top of him tickling him, and he's just going, this is awesome, this is too much, stop! You're killing me. That's kind of the picture that Spurgeon was having, to rejoice in the presence of God to the point of going, God, if you don't stop, I don't think I can go forward anymore. The psalmist was saying joy is a huge piece of our worship. And so I want to encourage you. How many of you, this, I'm just interested in this, how many of you come out of a Presbyterian background, church background, I love that. It's so few in our church. I love people go, tell me about your Presbyterian church. I'm like, well, it's more like a community church in a Presbyterian body. And, um, and so, how many of you come out of Catholic and Episcopal or High Lutheran backgrounds, kind of things? It's okay. You don't have to be ashamed. Uh, that's good. I mean, the Presbyterians were like, you know why? Because you have no idea how to raise your hands in worship, Presbyterians. <laughs> You're terrified. I get it. Uh, you know, Matt says here, lift your hands, and you guys are like, you know, John McCain worship kind of thing. Uh, and, 
and sorry, I like him, <laughs> but, but we come out of backgrounds so often that are stoic, and they're thoughtful, and they're cerebral. This is thoughtful and cerebral, but it leads to the heart. As you consider and you think about the excellencies and the glories of who God is, as you walked into Jerusalem and saw the walls, and you walked past the water gate, and you walked in and you saw the temple in all of its magnitude of how Solomon had made it, as you went in and you saw the gold and all the glories and you heard the Levitical choir singing the praises of God, you were overwhelmed that you could be in his presence that you were considered worthy enough to come in and be with the king who had redeemed you through a sacrifice that you knew you'd have to make over and over and over. Oh, but for the Christian who has one sacrifice who says you'll never have to make it again, now you get to enter into that place constantly without fear. Oh, how we should be overwhelmed with joy to think that we get to enter into that place. And when we sing these songs, we sing them with our whole hearts. As one of my professors said, I didn't believe him at the time, but I do so much now. Show me a person who doesn't sing within the congregation of God, and I will show you a person who has a problem in his heart. That when we come into the presence of God, we are filled with joy. God is most satisfied, Piper writes, when we, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. Do you want to glorify God today? Go enjoy him. Go enjoy and, and celebrate him. Bring into proportion everything else that's happening in your life. It doesn't mean it's not there. It doesn't mean it's not traumatic. It doesn't mean that it's not heavy and weighty. But it is never more heavy or more weighty than God himself. And God is saying to you, bring those things into perspective and in that rejoice in me. And the next thing that the psalmist says is that the worship of God is to be done together. Let us come into the house of the Lord. And then in verses 3 to 5, he picks up, Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes, all 12 of them, all the differences of the tribes and all the tribal squabbles and all the tribal rivalries that were happening, up go the tribes of the Lord as was decreed for God to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. The New Testament, you'll never find these words in the New Testament, worship service. Study it. You're not going to find worship service. You'll find meeting and you'll find gathering. And it's this idea of the gathering of the saints who come together with all of their differences. So part of what worship is like is it is us coming unified together. Part of what I love about our church is the differences that I see in our church. And what I want to see more over the course of time is more differences coming from different socioeconomic backgrounds, coming from different racial backgrounds, coming from different national backgrounds, coming from different political perspectives, coming from all different perspectives, but coming together under the presence of one king, and we can then together worship God. You know what I do know about our church is there's differences. Some of you like hymns. Some of you have no clue what hymns are. Some of you like drums. Some of you think they're an anathema to the church and should be cast out. And the young man sitting on the box, which is called a cajon, by the way, 
if you didn't know that, uh, is, it's good to rejoice in that way. And some of you are going, I, I, don't, I don't know. If it's not written uh, in the 1600s or 1700s, we shouldn't read it. If it's not a revivalist tune, we shouldn't sing it. And so we have all these differences. But you want to know the beauty of coming under the banner of God himself? All those things seem to go away. Who cares? Because what I promise you, Matt and I are working incredibly diff- hard to do is to bring us to a place of all of us together with all of our diversity, with all of our differences, to be able to worship God clearly. To come and to do that together. You know what would be the strongest statement to the surrounding community on Hilton Head and Bluffton? Is if no one here today left this church over a squabble. But we unified, stayed together, worked through our family differences, worked through our stuff, and continued to come and worship God together. Isn't it hard to hold a grudge with somebody who you're standing next to, and you're looking up at God, and you're looking at this person, and you're realizing, this is silly. I can't tell you how many times that I had to make a phone call to my wife early on a Sunday morning and say, Lise, I'm about to go lead God's people in worship. I need to be made right with you. Will you forgive me for being a jerk yesterday? I forgive you. And uh, <laughs> I promise I didn't say that. <laughs> Jesus said, if you are about to go into worship and you realize that your brother has something against you, leave your sacrifice and be made right with them. It didn't say that you have something against your brother. It says that your brother has something against you. He said it is so vital for the heart of worship to have a unified group of people. So as you come to worship, be unified in that. It's to have joy, and it's to be done together, corporately. That's why it's important to be together. I always love it when people go on vacation, and one of the things they vacation from is worship. I haven't figured that out about Christians hey, this is awesome. We don't have to go to church. I get it for pastors, but I don't get it for just the regular folks. No, I'm joking. I remember as a kid, my dad, he worked all the time. He only took a couple of Sundays a year off, and we would go, but he would make sure that our family was worshiping in the corporate body. He said, this is what it's about. Vacation doesn't mean anything. The Grand Canyon doesn't mean anything unless we can be together worshiping God who created all of this beauty that we're experiencing, enjoying in life. And so it's done together. And then finally, worship celebrates the peace of God. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say peace be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord, I will seek peace your peace. Now what this doesn't mean, and and I'm not going to go far on this, but we have been influenced by bumper stickers and, and a dispensational theology which has mixed in politics and socioeconomic ties with Israel in a way that's not biblical. What this is saying isn't we have to pray for Jerusalem. We should be praying for Jerusalem now because there's conflict in Jerusalem. Just as we should be praying for uh, the Ukraine uh, and the Middle East and and other places around the world. What the, the psalmist is talking about here is when God's people are gathered together with joy, unified, there will be shalom. There will be flourishing. 
And so we are to pray for the flourishing of the lives of the people who come together. A a presence of God's Spirit, which is bringing you to be who you fully are. Do you realize that you are all fully, you are most fully human when you are worshiping God? You are most who you were designed to be when you are worshiping God. You are flourishing. You are experiencing shalom at that point. And so he says, the peace of God is in the house of God as they gathered together. So we pray for the peace of God in our midst. That's what the passing of the peace was about. Wouldn't it be great to start your day each day that way? Whatever office you work, walked into, the school that you went, and someone greeted you and extended their hand and said, the peace of the Lord be with you. Would the presence of God in your life make your life today flourish? Would it make it come alive? Would it dance in the presence of the king? C.S. Lewis had it so right when Aslan moved into Narnia and all of a sudden winter fled from his presence and the trees came alive. And the tree nymphs came alive. And the water came alive. And all of creation in the presence of the king shalomed. It flourished in the presence of the king. That's what happens in our midst. We flourish in the presence uh, of our king. And then finally we'll end with this today. Those are some of the characteristics. Not all of them, but some at least from the psalm. And the final thing that I need to say to you is this. Worship is no longer about a location. It's about a person. In John 4, when Jesus was speaking to the woman, uh, the Samaritan woman at the well, and he said, you worship God here. And she said, we worship him here, and you worship him in Jerusalem. And Jesus said these words to her. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But basically what he was saying was there was, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither this nor that matters. In John's gospel, John only used the word hour when speaking of Christ's death. When Christ at the wedding feast of Cana said to his mother, Woman, interesting, almost the exact same language, Woman, my hour has not yet come. Woman, the hour is coming when people will worship. And what he's saying is this. Worship is no longer about a place. It's no longer about a location. It's about a person. That his hour gave us something to worship. That everything gets into proportion when you see the cross of Jesus Christ. And so the question then becomes to you, are you wrestling with proportion in your life? It's an illustration that I saw of a seven-year-old boy who had a teddy bear. And someone walked up to the boy and said to him, Son, I'll give you an oceanfront property, a house with everything that your family ever could want for the rest of your lives if you give me your teddy bear. And the boy thought for a moment and said, No way. You may empathize with the child. But we do that all the time with God. God is saying, are you willing to give up your silly stuffed animals of pride? Of what you think you have to have in this life? Of your distorted view of justice that you're going to hold a grudge against that person? That you're going to judge them? Or you have to have this? Or you have to have that? 
C.S. Lewis says, oh, it's not that your passions are too strong. It's that they're too weak. You just wallow around in mud pies when a vacation to the shore has been offered to you. What he's saying is this, bring into perspective all that you have and ask in light of who Christ is, is he asking too much? And if your conclusion is yes, then you haven't pondered it enough. The simple end to worship is this. If we want to grow, if you want to grow in your worship of the things around you in life, uh, of husbands, if you were reading Ephesians 5 and going, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And you're going, this is really hard. This is really hard to love my wife and to die to my passions, to put her passions, desires, and wants ahead of mine. You missed the point of what Paul was saying. He said, as Christ loved you. Christ put you ahead of himself. All of your sniveling, all of your stuff, maybe you can do that for your wife. Children, honor your parents, and so that it'll be good for you in the way that you would go. And you go, oh, that's just so hard. Children, parents, lead your children not to obedience, but to the gospel. Lead your children's hearts to the cross. So they would see that it's the cross that leads them to obedience. It's the cross that leads them to honor. And then for all of us, I don't do it well on Saturday nights. We need to wrap up. I'm going on. But wouldn't it be great on Saturday nights, but if not on Saturday nights, maybe just a little earlier on Sunday mornings, before you come in here, open up the scriptures. Read through how great the Father's love is for you. Sing through a hymn together. Prepare your hearts so that when you come into his presence in that way, all things take on their proper proportion in life. It's tough, guys. It's tough. I'm not going to belittle it at all. And I'll go ahead and invite the worship team up. You guys can come on back up while I'm finishing. But I was thinking this week, preparing for this sermon, and as Guy Malul comes up, boy, the Malul family's been through it. As you go, Gordon, last year, their grandson almost died, and God was incredibly gracious to spare Gordon. Well, this week... An urgent message came out that the other grandchild, Ada, had stopped breathing and was bleeding and, and had died, basically. And a young man just happened to be in the parking lot of that apartment building who knew CPR and revived her, and she's home, right? Yeah. And I look at a family and go, two grandchildren almost die. God, how is a family supposed to handle this? How are we supposed to move through this? I look in some of your lives and some of you are facing cancer. Some of you are facing devastating things. You're facing relationships in your home which are so tough. And the only way to press through it is not to simply say and ignore it that they're not there. But it's to bring it out and to bring it in front of a Savior who says, I'm still greater than that. If I've called you to suffer in this life, what is that in comparison to who I am? If I've called you to prosper in this life, what is that in comparison to who I am? Ah, bring Christ in so that you get a perspective. You know, I think about Guy and his family, and I, and I was praying, and I got the email that said that she was alive and going home. 
And my mind went right back to the verse from Paul. Oh, how I account these present sufferings as nothing in comparison to the cross of Jesus Christ. They are something, but they're nothing in comparison to the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for the beauty of a song sung for thousands of years. Oh, how I rejoiced when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And we rejoice today that through Christ we've been invited not simply into this house, but into the house. We've been invited and brought in and made fresh and new, and that we're in your presence both now and forevermore. And God, there's some difficult things happening in the lives of our people here. And I pray, I pray that in the middle of them, you would grant them proportion, and you would show yourself to be God. In all of your greatness, fill their lives with your presence that they may know joy and peace forevermore. To Christ be the glory. Amen.